0: All right, church, well, let's go ahead and get into the Word together. If you could, um, open up your Bibles to the book of Philippians, to the book of Philippians, or if you're using one of those scripture journals, um, and if you don't have one, please grab one of those on your way out. Uh, It's basically a scripture journal that just has the book of Philippians, and we want to just give that as a gift to you, because as a church, we've, we've just started walking through this New Testament book. And we're going to be in it for some time because we're simply taking our time to march our way through of what does Paul have to say to this church in Philippi? And why does that matter for us today, right? Why does that matter for us in the year 2021? Well, it matters a whole lot, and I hope we do see that. And if you're new to Bible study, right, you're new to maybe, maybe church, um, or at least to a church that you, you use the Bible not just as a prop to, to communicate <clears throat> Uh, you know, some some life principles, but rather the Bible being the the core driving engine of what we do, uh, we simply love to walk through books of the Bible. And we love to tell the whole story of the Bible as we walk through that. Because the Bible, it's, it's a book of, of poetry, as we read in the Psalms, it's a book of history, um, it has a couple of different genres, such as letters, which we're going to look at today, or even what is known as apocalyptic literature, which is like, like future literature of what's going to happen in the future. And even though it has all those different types of genres, the Bible actually tells one overarching story, one big story from Genesis to Revelation, and it's a story that begins in the garden, right, in Genesis 1. And it doesn't take long, because by the time you get to chapter three, you'll realize that the first humans that God has created, Adam and Eve, uh, they had this temptation to take what God had said. When God said that, hey, this is good for you to do, this is what I want you to do, this is what's going to bring the most flourishing to your life. Adam and Eve said, You know what? I think we might know better than you, God. I think we could actually decide what's best for us, and it's gonna go pretty well. And so they ate of this tree in which God told them not to eat of. And by doing so, the result of that was sin was brought into the world. And even though eating of the fruit was bad, that, that was not the point. That was not the fall. The fall was humanity and Adam and Eve saying, God, I don't think I can trust you in this moment. I don't think I can trust you for it's best in my life, so I'm going to take charge and I'm actually going to serve the one or be obedient to the one that I actually have decided who has the most value and the most worth and the most power in my life and that was themselves and so they ate of the of the tree that they were forbidden to eat of and and sin did enter the world but god was not done even though in that moment god could have said this was a mistake you did what i told you not to do i told you if you did this you would die and that will happen But God, in that moment, decided, despite their sin, and despite really all of our sin, right? Because we've all walked in the same pattern that Adam and Eve have walked in, right? We've all taken moments in our life where we say, God, I don't think that you know what's best for me. I know you said this pretty clearly, but I'm going to say that I know better. So even though, despite Adam and Eve's sin, and even our own sin, and walking in the same rebellion, God gives them a promise in those early days. And it's the promise that he's going to make things right. The promise that he is going to take the sin and its effects and reverse it. But by doing so, God tells us that it's going to cost someone greatly. It's going to cost someone greatly to be able to take on the effects of sin, the effects of Satan, who is our great enemy, who was in the garden influencing Adam and Eve at the time, and also death itself. And really that promise, though, is that our rebellion or our sin is not going to have the last act, but somebody else will, the coming one. It's the beginning of the story of redemption, right? And I'm sure if you've been around Bible study for some time, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? That, that beginning there is starting that whole story of redemption. So all those different genres in which I, I spoke of, they're all pointing to or looking back on what Jesus, who is that, that keeper of that promise in the garden, was going to do. So it's the beginning of a long affection that Christ is going to have for his people. And so Paul, going back to Philippians, Paul is writing this letter to a church reminding them of what Jesus has done, right? Reminding them that they are a part of that story of redemption, that God has started something in their midst. And so even looking concentratedly at verses 7 through 8 of chapter 1, that's where we're going to be at in Philippians this morning we'll see that Paul is going to start to talk about, once again, that we, the church, are partakers of grace. That we are partakers in this redemption process. We are partakers in the redemption story. Partners in grace. And so either we're looking back and saying, yeah, I've been a part of that redeeming process. I'm part of what God has been doing in those early days. Or maybe, for some of us, we're saying hey, I didn't realize that I was, I'm still on Team Adam, right? I'm still on Team Adam that's still walking away from God thinking that I know better. And maybe today you will begin to be on this, this plan of redemption for your own soul and what you need. So what God did all those years ago, we're still seeing the effects right now. But let's go ahead and stop there. I want to read for us our scripture. But as always, I'd like to take just another moment to pray. And I want to pray for you, that you guys would be able to just uh, see the word clearly, see the Savior and who it points to clearly. Um, and as I'm praying for you, I would ask just that you pray for me. So let's do that. Father, once again, we simply want to come to you in prayer, knowing that every good thing, Every, every spiritual gift, including to be able to understand your word, comes from you and you alone. So God, I pray for each, each person in this room this morning, even those that are, are away but are listening in online, that you would it just encourage them in your word this morning. That they'd be able to see who you are in a new and fresh way, maybe. Or simply be reminded of the God that you are. And also see how their story intersects with your grand story, Lord. God, I also pray for our kiddos um, as Kayla teaches them this morning and reminds them of the promises of God that even their little minds would be able to start to understand of what it means to be a partaker of grace. So God, we pray for all these things according to your wonderful and mighty name. Amen. Amen. All right, so Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. Let me go ahead and just read them for us and then we'll start walking through them. Paul says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you all all, all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Church, that is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, since we are picking up Paul in mid-thought here, let me just do a little bit of, of backstepping. Remember that Paul, as he's been saying, that he is incredibly thankful for this church. Right? He began in verse 3 talking about how every time he prays for the Philippians, right, every time he thinks about them, he's talking to God about them, he is overwhelmed with this joy, this joy that comes from knowing what God has been doing amidst them, knowing what God had started All those days before and is still doing today. And now last week we looked at some of those early days, right? We looked at the book of Acts and Acts 16 where we actually saw how the Philippian church got started. And do you remember how it got started? Basically, Paul preaching in the city, starting to talk to different individuals, and we see a wealthy businesswoman named Lydia come to faith. We see a a demon-impressed little girl be freed from her demonic oppression and start to follow Christ. We see, even amidst being jailed, Paul's still sharing the gospel to where a Philippian jailer gets converted, gets saved, understands the gospel and what Jesus has done for him. And between the three of them and their families, all of a sudden... There's a church in Philippi wanting to understand who this God is, wanting to understand more and more what he has done for them through the person and work of Christ. As Paul is saying, looking back to you, or looking back to Acts 16 and remembering those first days, it is right for me to feel this way about you. It is so right for me to feel this way about you. To be thankful for you. To be joyful for you. So in verse 7 then, He's basically, he's just reminding them of how, how much they mean to him once again. How much, they, he means to them so much as, he says, I, I hold you in my heart. I hold you in my heart. Now, this isn't Paul just kind of getting, you know, lovey-dovey about the Philippians, right? He's not saying like, I'll just, I just I can't get enough of you. I'm just thinking about you all the time. I just want to sing, you know, prom songs to you. Just how much I love you. No, he, he's saying that I hold you in my heart because I know what God has done in and through you. It even goes on. If you look at the end of verse 7. Where he goes with that. The reason why I hold you in my heart. is, like for you are all partakers. With me in grace. That you've experienced. The grace of salvation. That you've experienced. What God can do for, for anybody. Right. If God can save. A businesswoman Who has wealth that. She will never be in need right? Never wonder where her next meal is coming from. And God can enter into the heart of that and say, but it's not just about these material things. There's something that your heart needs beyond just what you can buy. It's something that only I can give you. It's only what Christ can give you. Or think of the Philippian jailer, right? In a prestigious position of power and authority, and in a moment's notice, he feels like it's all going to be taken away from him, that his job, his life, his family is all going to be taken away from him from a little slip up in his own mind when, when the jailers seem to be getting free. But yet God entered his story as well. Saying, no, 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 your job is not your identity. Your job does not give you worth. Your job does not make you be valuable in this world, but I do. What I feel about you. And so he saves that jailer as well. And so as we think about this church, What Paul says in this moment is, I hold you in my heart because I know you're partakers of grace with me. I know that you're partakers in that salvation of grace and that you matter to me. But I think Paul even gives us a little even more emphasis on what he's talking about. Not just partakers of grace in general, like it doesn't have any kind of life application, but look at what he says. You are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment. Now let's stop there. In my imprisonment. So Paul thinks about the grace of God, thinks about what Jesus has done in and through him in a way that it impacts his day-to-day life, right? This is not just a Sunday morning thing for Paul. He's saying, you have been partakers of grace with me in my imprisonment. And this is the first time we're hearing that Paul is in prison, Paul hasn't been talking about that he's been in prison in the first few verses, right? And we talked about this at length a couple weeks ago, that the reason why Paul didn't talk about his imprisonment is because at the forefront of his mind and his heart was this church, was people, that God, or Paul could care less about his circumstances in comparison to what God was doing, and so he was about people, he loved people. And he didn't allow the circumstances in his life to dictate what was most important to him. Because you will always do what's most important to you. Right, church? You will always do what's most important to you. It's true of every single one of us. So regardless of being in prison or walking the streets, right, as a free man in Philippi, Paul always had the same goal. Right? He always had the same goal. The the same chief end, if you will. The same chief end to his life. And what is the chief end of man? Well, according to the the Westminster Catechism, the shorter catechism, question number one, when it says, What is the chief end of man? the church has responded with that question by saying the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see, Paul was understanding this reality. And that's why he's talking about you've been partakers of grace with me in all kinds of situations, even in my imprisonment, even when I've been sitting in a jail cell. Now, why did that matter to Paul? Why did he highlight that? Well, if you think from the Philippian side, that church side, if somebody that you knew and cared for and was a a big deal in the movement in which you were a part of, which is Christianity is this movement, right, to, to share the gospel of what Jesus has done for sinners like you and I if one of your main guys, right, is in prison for that, in this time, if you were to be in prison, it'd have been a pretty shameful thing. And likely to be imprisonment as what is ultimately true in Paul's case, it was a death sentence. It meant you were going to be killed and executed for this movement that you were a part of. But the Philippians were not abandoning Paul. We're not saying, just because you're in prison, or just because you've been arrested, now we're going to We're going to give up on this whole thing. We're going to give up on this whole Jesus thing, which was very common with other movements during this time. When one of your leaders was arrested and you knew that they were going to be killed, you know what happened to that movement? It died. It died. It died usually with that person who was leading the charge, but not so with Christianity, huh? Not so with what the gospel does. It actually moves beyond paul's life it moves beyond our life the very thing that we talked about right in psalm 49 that it's not just about us but what we're doing now counts forever and so paul says i thank you for being a partaker of grace with me in my imprisonment in my imprisonment when you could have easily abandoned me you could have easily disregarded everything in which God has done because of the hardship or the circumstances of my life. He's like, I thank you for being a partaker of grace with me, even right now, even when things are not going well. Paul would allude later on in this book that the Philippian church uh, was actually giving Paul financial resources. They They were supplying some of the ways that Paul could not only be fed and clothed, but also continue his work to preach the gospel even from a prison cell. We'll, we'll see this later on in the, in the book. And so Paul is, I think, talking about that. Like you've been a partaker of grace with me in my imprisonment because you've been supplying and, and helping me in this time. But I think it's more than that. I think it's even more than that. Because to be a, a partner of grace or a partaker of grace, for those of you who have been affected by the grace of God, by what he, what Jesus did on the cross, when you believe that, when you see that, when you read that, and you understand that, and you believe that, it counted for you, that you were in need of somebody atoning for your sins, just like Paul, just like the Philippian church, and you enter into, not just being saved from wrath, but you were saved into the grace of God, it changes everything about you, doesn't it? It changes the way that you view this world. It changes the way that you understand even the word grace. That's not just something that you say before you eat a meal, right? But it's actually the pool in which your whole life swims around in. So dear friends, I want to ask and encourage you, are you a partaker of grace? Do you know the grace of God? Do you know what Christ has done on your behalf? When you think of the word grace, or maybe when you think of grace, you think of amazing grace. Write that, that wonderful hymn. Do you believe that those words count for you? That you were blind, but now you can see? Are you a partaker of grace? And I believe a partaker of grace is not just someone who's experienced it at salvation, even though that's absolutely true. But to be a partaker of grace means that you're a giver of grace, you're a lover of grace, and you actually receive grace continually. That grace for the Christian is not just from day one and then it's over, right? You see this in just the language that Paul is using, that you are partakers of grace, like active, still going on. It's still a part of you. So let me ask you, are you a giver of grace then? Are you a giver of grace? Or is your life marked and exhibited by someone who has received unmerited love from God, but yet never want to give it out to anybody else? That you are quick to be angry, to judge, to constantly be disappointed in others. And I'm not saying that there won't be times in your life where those things will happen, but is the mark of your life one of grace or one of condemnation? Because I think that will show or at least shine a light onto what you have experienced in your own life. Are you quick to give grace? in the way that you think, in the way that you speak, in the way that you interact with others. Right? right. Here's, here's, I talk to my sister about this all the time, my, my sister Amanda, who's here. She owns DST Coffee here in town. And we have regular conversations, and, it, and honestly, it breaks my heart because of this. She tells me that the worst customers that she has in the coffee shop Are Christians. Are Christians. Outright vocal Christians who come in demanding things from the shop or her that are simply unreasonable and could never be attained, or they're just grumpy, just grumpy, like just, they could never be satisfied, like they've never, it seems like they've never had someone say that, I love you, and they take it out on the barista, the, the poor guy or gal who's just trying to make your espresso so you stop yelling at them right? I get it. I get it. You know, if you, if you're having some caffeine withdrawals, that can have some, some, some major, you know, psychological effects, but that's no excuse to treat people without grace. Or you think about the way that maybe you tip in a restaurant, right? You tip your server, who we all know right now is working incredibly hard, which almost every single place is down staff. And so they're the ones that are showing up to work do you tip well or do you justify saying well you know what they didn't do a really good job right they don't they don't deserve you know this tip and maybe so but that is why you give out of a grace-filled heart you give what they don't deserve that's what it means to be a giver of grace so how does that look like in your own life we must ask ourselves that regularly to be a partaker of grace means that you are a giver of grace Or do you love grace when you think about it? As I mentioned before, do you love the word grace in all of what it represents in your own life and what it represents in your walk with Christ? Or if you've gotten caught in the trap, and it's it's easy to do this, especially if you've been walking with Christ for a, a number of years maybe, that you can begin to think that all of what you have in this world or all that you have in walking with Christ is because of what you have done. And how dedicated you have been. Or how obedient you have been. It's all about you. And you begin to disregard grace entirely. And so you expect somebody else to be further along in their walk. Not because God has been gracious towards you and revealing to who he is and what he's done for you. But you think it's been all because of you. All of what you have done. So are you a lover of grace? And love in which God, what God has done in your life? Or do you receive grace? Right? Are you partaking in grace by being a receiver of it currently? Not just the first day, but every single day. Because you know that Jesus is not done with you. And how do you know that Jesus is not done with you? Because you're actively trying to, to walk with Christ in a way and be obedient in a way that you're confessing sin. That you know that there's still patterns and thoughts and actions in your life that can be traced right back to what Adam and Eve did in the garden. That there are still times in your life where you go, I know, God, this is what you say is good and will lead to flourishing, but I'm going to do the exact opposite. We still do that, don't we? So are you a receiver of grace? Are you realizing that in your own life and being, and being a confessor of that sin so that you can receive more grace and be a partaker of it? Paul, our author of Philippians, uh, who wrote a number of New Testament books. He, he writes a, a letter to a pastor named Timothy, who's mentioned in the beginning of Philippians. But Timothy is basically this young pastor protege who's learning from Paul. And in one of the last books that Paul, or letters that Paul writes, he writes to the Timothy, basically instructing him on how he can love and shepherd his church well. And let me show you this from First Timothy 12, 12 This is Paul basically recalling grace in his own life, both past and present. He says this. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing to me his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. What is Paul saying in this moment? He's saying, Timothy, remember where your strength comes from. Oh, and by the way, I'm still the chief of sinners. I'm still the chief of sinners in my life because I know my heart better than I know anybody else's heart and I know that I need that daily partaking of grace more than anybody else. And so Paul says I am actively still currently the chief of sinners. And that should be true of every single one of us, shouldn't it be? That when we look at our own hearts and we look at our own propensities and we look at our own sinful patterns, we could say I am the chief of sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. And so, what do you do with that? You receive grace, just like you did on the first day. So, we give grace. We love grace. We receive grace because of the ongoing work of Christ. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 7. But he continues. He continues. Keep, let's keep reading. So, you're partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. What is Paul talking about there? Well, later on in chapter 3, Paul would talk about how there's this group of people that have come into the church in Philippi, and they're basically telling the Philippians, yeah, 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 what you, what, you, know, what you believe and, and what you think about grace and, and all that, it, it's kind of important, but you know what's really important? Is if outwardly you look really good. If outwardly, if you have your stuff together, then the inward stuff, that'll just kind of follow along. But start with the outward and then work your way to the inward. And, and Paul will absolutely rebuke that mentality. Because it, it starts inwardly and then flows outwardly. The grace of God does. But what Paul is doing though, I think in verse 7 is he's saying, I know that those people are in the church. And I thank you for being a partaker of grace in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. So the Philippians, what they've been doing is they've been defending what Paul has been talking about defending that is no, no. It's not about what you do. It's not about your outward appearance. It's not about how you look to others. It's about what's going on inside your heart. It's it's go, it's about what, what God has been doing in you and through. It's about what Jesus has done on the cross that counts. And so he's saying, I so thank you for being a defender of that, constantly defending that it is through Christ and Christ alone in whom you were saved. It's through Christ and Christ alone that you can be a partaker of grace. Like, I thank you for defending and confirming that that's the hill. That's the hill that it means to be a partaker of grace. Now the reformers in the, the 16th century, guys like Martin Luther or John Calvin, if you've heard those names, they, they had to defend a, a similar type hill in their lifetime. The hill of what does it mean to be made right with God? How does somebody know if they are right with God? Is it based on outward appearances or something else? Is it based off of what Christ has done or is it something else? And so what they did in order to defend and confirm this, this gospel is they came up with five solas. Five Latin phrases. You've probably seen these. We have them out in our lobby. But I want to show these to you. Solas Christus, sola fide, sola gratia, sola de gloria, and sola scriptura. They're Latin phrases. Let me just unpack these really quick because I think they're important. And they're, they're an important hill I think we must recognize as a church if we're going to be in defense and confirmation of the gospel. The first sola is solus Christus, or Christ alone. That's what it translates to. It means that we know that we were dead in our sins, unable to save ourselves, that we, just like Adam, just like Eve, fell into this thought pattern that we could do life outside of God. And so we rebelled against him. But God is the fulfillment of that promise. The fulfillment of one that's gonna come and live the life that we could not live and yet die the death that we deserved. And so it's through Christ alone that we can have salvation, nobody else. Or sola fide, by faith alone. So, how does one believe in the redemption of Christ? How do we believe and trust in that? How do we anchor in this faith that we have? It's by faith alone. It's not up to anybody else. It's not based off of how how much we hold on to or how good we are and always proclaiming it, but it's by faith in Christ alone. Or sola gratia, by grace alone. Because if our hope is in another, it's by someone else's work. It's by Jesus' work on the cross. If we are to receive that gift and if we're going to receive that salvation, how is that going to be? Is it because we earned it? Is it because God says, you know what, You're, you're pretty good. I might as well do this for you. No, it's by grace alone. It's totally undeserved. Sola gratia. Number four, sola de gloria. To God's glory alone. What does this mean? If we simply believe, right, and we received this grace, if we received this faith, if we've understood that it's through Christ and Christ alone, we do not go home then boasting in ourselves, do we? We don't walk out of these doors saying, this is how good I am. No, but we walk out of these doors saying, this is how good God is. To God and God alone gets the glory. And lastly, sola scriptura, by scripture alone. That the way that we know that this is true, the way that we know that everything in which I just mentioned is true and right and part of God's good plan of redemption for humanity for sinners like you and I is by Scripture and Scripture alone. That we have that hope. And so Paul, I think, is highlighting to the Philippian church that you have been defending and confirming this gospel. And ever since, the church has been called to defend and confirm the same gospel. And I just think that the way that the Reformers framed this with those five solas is just a helpful way for us to think, how can we then be defenders and confirmers of the gospel? By holding fast to these areas. Because these are biblical. These describe everything in which we want to be about as a church. This is what we defend and confirm. And I think it'd be, it'd be uh, fair to say that this is not what the world is offering us, right? This is not the five solas of the world. No, I think, I think really the world has one sola right now, and it's you do you. But Christ says, come to me. See, church, what I want you guys to see, just and that's the reason why I'm walking slowly through these opening verses, is that Paul is not wasting a word here. He's not wasting a word. He's trying to get us all to just align our hearts to remember what Jesus has done, what we want to give our lives to. And it's profound. It's so profound. I think if you were to jump over to verse 8, that Paul makes an incredible statement. So much that he even has like this oath. In verse eight, what does it say? It says, "For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus." Saying like, because you're doing all this, because I know that you're being partakers of grace, you're loving grace, you're receiving grace, you're giving grace, you've experienced grace from God. He says, "I love you with the affection of Christ Jesus." Now, it would be quick to just move past that, I'm like that's nice, Paul. Love us like Jesus does, but that affection—that word affection there—is is a really big word in the original Greek. It basically, it could be translated, and some Bibles actually have this. Basically, the the like the inward parts of who you are, like the some of translations say, "I love you with the bowels of Christ." Right, that that inward reality, that that inward part of you at the gut level. Paul, that's the word affection there. Right? It's not just mere surface level affection. It's so much deeper than that. Paul is saying, I have this affection for you that it's so deep inside of me. It's, it's part of exactly who I am. But Paul is mentioning, he's, he's not talking about his affections. He's saying the affections of who? Of Jesus. Right? He's tying into that. That he's not just pulling out deep inside him something that he feels ultimately for the church, but what God ultimately feels about them. That I feel about you the same way in which Jesus feels about you. I think that's why he swears by it. Right? He's saying, if, as God is my witness, right? as God is being in the witness stand, he knows this about my heart, that I have this affection for you like Christ does. Now, what's the obvious way that we can look at that then? Well, how did Christ love us? How did Christ then, how does he love sinners like you and I? Right? What are those affections of Christ then? What do those actually mean? Let's go back to the Gospels. Right? Those accounts of Jesus' life. What do you remember about how Jesus interacted with people? How he displayed affection for them? Do you remember when Jesus, when he was, when he was walking and he was preaching and teaching, that he went to the ones caught in sexual addiction or sexual promiscuity or those who were addicted to the bottle and considering drunkards. Do you remember that he's the one that hung out with them? Even so much that he was accused of doing the same. But he had this deep affection for the people that society had written off and saying, no, 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 I'm going to come to you. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to show you what the heart of God looks like. See, the affection of Christ is the one that comes to one that thinks that they can never be approached by a holy and righteous God. Jesus says, no, that's not the case. Or you think of the affection of Christ that confronts sin as the ultimate problem, not just your circumstances, not just your behavior, but what's at the core level of that. Remember when Jesus was preaching in a house one time and there's this group of friends that had this this, one of their friends was paralytic and they, they needed basically this healing that that took place and they couldn't get to jesus so what did they do they climbed up on the roof of the house which jesus was preaching at and they began to tear the roof off so they could lower their friend in front of jesus and what when they do that they get this guy right in front of jesus this handicapped paralyzed guy right in front of jesus saying jesus will you heal this man and do you remember what jesus then says to him he says sons or, son, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, that's not why we tore the roof off, Jesus. I don't know if you know this, there's, there's a physical problem here we want you to fix. See, but Jesus has the affection to go after the problem underneath the problem. To go after sin. And so he says, your sins are forgiven. Or we think of the affection of Jesus to heal those that had leprosy. Heal those that had uncurable diseases. That Jesus is one that would go after and hang out and heal those that seemed like their life was over. Maybe because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. We think of the affection of Jesus to take on the religious elites. Right? Those that were trying to say, this is how you get right with God. If you do these things, if you obey these laws, then and only then might God be happy with you. Maybe then could you be saved. And Jesus said, no, no, no. No, no, no. It's about me. It's about what I'm going to do for you. It's not about what you're going to do for me. That will come later. But it starts with what I'm going to do for you. And ultimately we see that on the cross right, where the affection of Jesus to atone for sinners like you and I, to bear the penalty on that Roman cross, basically to die in the place for sinners like you and I, that we are the ones that deserve to be there. We are the ones that deserve to be killed. That was the promise of if we brought sin into this world, was death. But the affection of Jesus said, I love you so much, I'm going to go to the cross for you. And die in your place. So not only will I take your place on the cross, but then I will be able to give you my life as a substitute. You see, the grace of God, the affection of God, is utterly unique. It is utterly unique. In fact, the only place in all of the Bible, church, when Jesus actually starts to describe his own heart in Matthew 11, do you know what he says about his own heart? He calls it gentle and lowly. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28. The only place where he describes his own heart, he describes it as gentle and lonely towards repentant sinners that know that their only hope is in him. Now, I'm going to talk more about that reality, about Jesus' heart being gentle and lowly in the next couple of weeks. And I have a... Um, a gift for you that I think is going to help understand that for us as a church but what I want to get to is simply remind us that this is the affection that Paul is saying I have for you church is I want to look and view and interact with you in the way that Christ has done that and is doing that for you right now to be a partaker of grace that two-way street Which I'm going to give you grace, I'm going to receive grace, I'm going to love the grace in which God is pouring out on you. And can you imagine? Can you imagine, church, if we all did this? Right? If we had this approach to trying to love each other like Christ loved us? Paul would say this later on in Ephesians to husbands, right? He would say, Husbands, you should love your wives like what? Like Christ loved the church, right? He's constantly trying to get to this reality that the greatest way that we could ever love somebody or treat somebody is if we do it under the banner of God's grace and redemption and love towards us. Are we moving in that direction? Are we moving in that direction? And Paul is saying that I long for you that way. I long for you that way. That the depths of who I am, the depths of who I am is I want to be a partaker of grace and show you the affections of Jesus in my interactions with you. So ultimately, just in, in recapping, I think, verses three through eight, Paul is talking about, I want to be partners of grace with you. Even though that I'm in a prison cell and even though that you're, you're further away, you're still working and doing the same thing which we've all been called to do and as be partakers of grace, to remember what Christ has done for us. And if you haven't remember what Christ has done for you, Or maybe you're struggling to remember what Christ has done for you. Maybe you just have to go back to the beginning. Or maybe this whole idea of of having the affections of Jesus seems like such a, a foreign concept for you because you don't know the affections of Jesus. And friends, can I just encourage you today to start to look and think about the way that Christ looks and treats people like you and I? Is if he can love and if he can die for a person like you, Or a person like me, if that's the God in whom we're we're worshiping this morning, I mean, I'll get behind that every single day of the week. Because I'm the chief of sinners. And I know, I know that in and of myself, I have nothing to offer God. I have no reason to sing to God. I have no reason to pray to God. But because of what Christ has done, because he has allowed me to enter into that story of redemption that started in Genesis, right, and is still going on today, I can be a partaker of grace, but it's of grace, not because of me, not because I got my life together. I don't, but grace is continually working in my life because Christ is continually working in my life. Remember verse six, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. See, Paul knows that we're works in progress. He knows that we're not done, but he says, hold on, God is still moving. He's still moving in you, and I thank you that he's still moving in you, and I thank you that you're partaking in confirming and holding fast to, to all of what Christ has done, knowing that there's people in your life, there's things going on in your world, there's things going on in your community that are always going to be trying to drive you away from that reality. And he's saying, hold on, stand firm, confirm, defend. It's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. That's the gift. That's the gift that we have, church. So, just before I pray, partakers of grace. It's a small phrase. It's a small phrase, right? We quickly just read over that usually when we begin Bible study. But how much more then are we going to think through, am I a partaker of grace today? And by God's grace, no pun intended, we all can be. So let's pray.